Father, we just ask you to come by your Holy Spirit. Come and anoint him and the words that you've given him to say. And anoint us, Lord. Open our ears, our eyes, our hearts to receive your truth. And Lord, may we be willing to change today, to hear something and let you change our hearts and lives. I pray that for us all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Sally. Uh, as Tim said, we take a break from our Samuel series today. We're going we're gonna to spend today looking at uh, the heart of true spiritual experience and um, meaning of life and light sort of easy topics like that um, as a bit of a break from one Samuel. Uh, and maybe we've been set up well by the things that Tim and John have just said to us. So maybe there'll be some uh, connection between the two. Uh, the silver lining, I mean, some of you have been really enjoying the Samuel series. So I'm sorry to disappoint you by not carrying it on today. The silver lining is that um, it gives you an extra week to catch up on podcasts of the ones that you've missed before Adrian picks it up again uh, next Sunday. So I'd encourage you to do that. So you're sort of up to date with the story. As Adrian, this is 1 Samuel 8, is it, mate? 1 Samuel 8 next week. So make sure you've got up to date for 1 Samuel 8. And then Adrian's talk will hopefully uh, be easier to digest. So today we're going to look at Psalm 84 to help us think about those things. But before we do that, I want to talk to you about the inner ache. The inner ache. And not the inner ache of having had too much to eat earlier in the evening or the inner ache of having done some exercise for the first time in a while, although I'm sure they're common experiences. But I want to talk about another common experience of an inner ache. And I'm going to try a few different ways to describe this to you. My hope is that at least one of them you'll relate to in some way. So you'll have to give me some grace this morning and just sort of give me a generous listening. Try and hear what I'm trying to say, the inner ache that I'm going to try and describe. It's when we wake up one day and we think, what is all this really about? What is all this really about? What am I doing? If you've had those moments, you sort of start a day and you think, what am I doing? What happened? I think... Um, you know, we realise it's particularly hard sometimes when we've achieved something that we've always wanted or got somewhere we wanted to be. It's when we've got that house or that promotion or that partner, that experience. And um, we're suddenly hit by the feeling that we're just kind of going through life, but we can't really remember why. Um, if you get our newsletter, you may have read uh, my article about Demi Lovato this week. Um, if not, then I'd you know, encourage you to read that, ties in with what I'm saying this morning. Um, but she's just one example of many we've had of rich, famous people who have achieved everything they think that they want and found that the hole is even bigger then than it was before. But you don't have to be rich and famous to experience this. Uh, I think we all tend to at times. I, you know, you're, you're walking into work and you just think, why am I doing this day again what is this all for so um you know is this life all that i have for me is this all there is for me is there more to life than this so that's the first inner ache and i think this inner ache makes itself um it's as old as humanity the way it makes itself known in the book of ecclesiastes in the bible 
you know, two and a half thousand years ago at least, the sage writes this. He writes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils after the sun? I've seen everything that's done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Doesn't that capture it sometimes? Another way of translating vanity would be futile. You know, all is futile. A chasing after him. My life is like the mist that comes and goes. Is that all there is to it? I wonder if you've experienced that or something like it. Second way to describe it, maybe you don't connect to that, but a second way to describe this would be the feeling that what we want is always just out of reach, just round the next corner. It's the next stage in life that is going to feel genuinely satisfying. So um, I think when we're young, when we're in school, we tend to think, oh, when I'm out of school, I've got some money and some independence, then my life is really going to begin. And then we get there and we think, well, you know, we've started work or further education maybe. And we think, well, you know, when I find someone, when I find someone to get married, then I'm going to feel genuinely satisfied. And that comes and then it's, oh, well, when the kids are here and we've got a family, we'll feel like we've got there. And then you've got kids and then you think, oh, it'd be really nice to have some time again. <laughs> and, and the stage of life that's going to really fulfill you is always coming but never quite here. Yeah, do you know that feeling? I wonder if you know that feeling. Always coming, never here. And that kind of ache that real life is just out of reach can drive us to keep straining to reach the thing we haven't got. It's just get to the next stage, get the next whatever. We're driven on because we feel like it's nearly here. <laughs> I've just got to reach for it. The poet Stephen Crane, he puts it like this. Powerfully, I think. He writes, I saw a man pursuing the horizon. Pursuing the horizon. Round and round they sped. I was disturbed at this. I accosted the man. It's futile, I said. You can never, you lie, he cried and ran on. Isn't that a powerful depiction of that feeling, I think? Perhaps you recognize that. Perhaps you recognize that ache, that what you really want is just beyond the reach of your fingertips. Uh, if not, then one final way I'll try and describe the ache to you this morning is it's the ache of a desire for something, but you can't quite articulate what it is you desire. It's the longing for something that you can't quite put your finger on. Um, I experienced a moment of this a few weeks ago. Um, I, I was walking to work fairly early, uh, the sun was uh, clear, low in the sky, crisp morning. You turned a corner and I had that sort of inner feeling of something inarticulate that I knew I longed for. Was it the beauty of nature? I didn't think so because that was still there. Um, it's not quite that. It was like I'd brushed the edge of something I desired but had then lost what that was. Like something had slipped through my fingers the second that I realized it was there. And C.S. Lewis writes about this experience as well. Uh, and I'm going to read you an extended quote of his. The second half of it, I think, will appear on the screen. He writes, I call it joy. I felt it in the memory of a memory. 
As I stood beside a flowering currant bush on a summer day, there suddenly arose in me without warning, as if from a depth not of years but of centuries, the memory of an earlier morning at an old house where my brother had brought his toy garden into the nursery. It's difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me. It was a sensation, of course, of desire, but desire for what? Before I knew what I had desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn. The world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. In a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. The quality of this experience is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I mean, he's a beautiful writer, isn't he? But I wonder if you can relate to that inarticulate thing. Um, I hope that maybe those three examples will allow most of you to connect to what I'm trying to describe. If not, I apologize. If this all sounds mystical and odd, then I hope you'll get something out of the rest of the sermon anyway. But perhaps the most sort of down-to-earth way I can sum it up is that we all as humans seem to experience a deep and painful inner ache that seems to combine desire with despair, seems to connect to purpose and hope and significance and joy. And uh, this is the context in which we'll turn to Psalm 84. Um, but just give me five more minutes before we do say, so, because before we do so, I just want to observe, I think, a couple of the ways that generally as humans we respond to that inner ache that we have. Uh, in my view, uh, the main way perhaps that we deal with it is to ignore it, is to ignore it, is to pay it no attention, to try and pretend it's not there, to sort of squash it down, because it's frightening. Those sort of feelings confront us with the big questions of life. And um, so we keep it out of sight. Uh, and in order to do that, we have to avoid silence and solitude and stillness because it's in those moments where our desires make their presence felt. And we remember the ache. So, uh, you know, we often just deal with it by distraction. Uh, if we can keep ourselves busy and entertained and all of this out of sight, then that can do the job. And I think, isn't it interesting how the little things of life reveal this? So if you ask someone, anyone, how they're doing, how they are, the first thing you're almost guaranteed, guaranteed to get is okay, isn't it? Like, how are you? Oh, yeah, I'm okay. Um, I think the second most common thing I get and hear from myself is, yeah, I've been busy. Isn't that the second most common thing we say to each other? Yeah, it's been busy, busy time, I'm busy. Um, or at least we think we're busy. We think we're busy. Uh, because sometimes when you look at some of the sort of social studies that are produced, you realize that something strange is going on. Say, uh, one big social study on the use of smartphones was published, 100,000 people. We've talked about smartphones a few times. It's such a good illustration. Uh, this study found that the average smartphone user, so just the normal one, uh, touches their screen 2,617 times a day. 76 sessions for a total of 145 minutes. So this massive study tells us that the average smartphone user spends two and a half hours engaged with their phone every day. Now, I'm not 
actually here to knock that this morning. That's not the point of telling you that, is to criticise it. The point is just to say, how do we think about the fact that we all feel incredibly busy and we all spend two and a half hours on our phone? Like what it tells me is that we choose to be busy. Like that's not just something that happens to us, it's a lifestyle we choose to live. And that's the point I want to grasp. I don't want to criticise our use of smartphones this morning. I want us to grasp that we choose to be busy and then to think, why? Why do we choose to be so busy? Like, we never slow down to experience things. You know, if we're in the car, we tend to listen to something. If we have a night in, we tend to put the TV on. If we're in a queue for the shopping, phones out. And we fill our lives with noise. And we bury our real inner life and desires underneath this activity. We bury it. It becomes our buried life. And there's probably a couple of reasons we do this. The one I want to draw out this morning is I think we do that to avoid dealing with our inner ache. There's probably others you could put on there. And another poet, Matthew Arnold, he noticed this same human tendency a couple of hundred years ago. And that shows us that it's not just smartphones that are the problem. But in the 19th century, he noticed our compulsive burying of our real life with activity and how that disconnects us from our desires. And he wrote this, again, an extract from one of his poems. He wrote, but often in the world's most crowded streets, often in the din of strife, there rises an unspeakable desire after the knowledge of our buried life, a thirst to spend our fire and restless force in tracking our true original course, a longing to inquire into the mystery of this heart that beats so wild, so deep in us, to know whence our thoughts come and where they go. An unspeakable desire, there it is again, a desire I can't quite put my finger on, a longing for something I can't quite express for the life that we bury in activity. Say, say this, I think, is the first way we cope with the ache, we bury it. Um, and that can be partially successful. I think the second way we deal with the ache is we try to seize hold of something that promises to satisfy it, like something else that will do the job. I won't spend long on this because we've talked about it enough um, over the last year or two, but the most common ones, uh, money, possessions, you know, the consumerist narrative that if you have enough stuff, the inner ache will go away. That's common, isn't it? Sex, pleasure, again, the kind of, cultural narrative of when you find your other half you'll be complete when you find your true love the ache goes away the pleasure of the things that addict us the drink the high of drugs traction of pornography etc these all sort of offer pleasure and promise to soothe the ache i think that's why they draw us and um, to some extent they're successful for a while and the third one money sex power Power and influence often tempts us because um, our ache is to do with purpose and significance as well, I think. And so the offer of position, the offer of the chance to actually do something is incredibly seductive for those of us who ache. And out of the three, money, sex and power, power is by far the most dangerous because it's by far the most subtle because the desire for power often masquerades under virtue. Often as masquerades as virtue, you know, this ache for significance and meaning is drawn to power because we think we can finally do something. 
You know, it's weird, but the Nazis had, on the whole, a compelling vision for the flourishing of humanity. It's really interesting to read some of their history about the development of the movement. It came out of a vision for the flourishing of humanity. It masqueraded as virtue, and often, often the most devastating human crimes are committed with a sense of virtue and a vision of the good. This is the seduction of power, that through power we conceive the ache. And as a little aside, this can be totally Christianized. You know, um, church is just another institution in some ways that our need for significance and power can find a sort of home to dwell in. Just leave that as a sort of little side thought. We won't go into it in depth. So that's all quite negative so far. I realise, I kind of predict, and I see around the room that I've given a bleak picture, you know, that we all have an inner ache uh, and that this tends to leave us tired, depressed, anxious, lost. Um, that is bleak. I'd suggest it's also realistic. But let me sound one other note of hope before we turn to Psalm 84, and that's this. I think our inner ache is also one of the reasons why humans are so resilient and always have the potential for change. Always have the potential for change. You know, the inner urge for something we don't have can lead us to endure a whole lot in the hope of receiving it. And it means that whatever false pleasure we've tried to use to soothe it, because it won't do the job, there's always some impulse in humans pushing them on to look for what there could be that's more to life than this. It seems to me that because our ache cannot be medicated or totally eradicated, with room to flourish, it can lead us to our true goal. That gives me great hope, no matter who I am with. So... I've spent a lot of time setting a context because it's in that context I want us to read Psalm 84 together. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn to it, but it will appear on the screen behind me and we'll read the whole Psalm through and then take it in three chunks. Psalm 84, I'm reading from the ESV. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Bacar, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold 
from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Hmm. So given all that I've said this morning about the inner ache, is not the key task for every human who's ever lived to find the true goal of that desire? What is it in the end that we ache for? What is it in the end that we long for in those moments? Well, the psalmist has worked it out. My soul longs, yes, faints. Again, again, like the poets we read earlier, like C.S. Lewis, we have the same language of deep, inarticulate desire. My soul longs for the courts of the Lord. The courts of the Lord. Now, for the psalmist at the time he's written, the courts of the Lord were the Jerusalem temple, and he imagines the birds who make their nests in the stonework of the walls of the temple. You might like to imagine birds you've seen roosting in big buildings. That's the picture he creates. As blessed are those who are always dwelling in the courts of the Lord. That's what he wishes for himself. But it's not the building, is it? I mean, the building was magnificent, stunning. But the soul doesn't long for a building. The building is the memory of a memory that draws the longing of the soul. It's because the temple was the place of God's presence. It was his house, his dwelling place. My soul longs for the courts of the Lord, says the psalmist, because it's the presence of God. I think what this psalm speaks of is that it is God who is the true object of our deep desires and our longings. And until we know that, our ache will flail around, attached to all kinds of things in the search, or we'll bury it, you know, try and kill it off. But when we know that the real goal of our ache is to drive us to God, then there is hope. There is hope. You know, I wonder how many of us sometimes are scared of the strength of our desires. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but I wonder how many of us are scared of the strength of our desires because so often they seem to be desiring things we think are bad and we, and we struggle with that. But I, I think it's important to see that our deepest and our truest desires are given by God to drive you towards him. They often attach to the wrong objects. I know they do. But they're given to drive us to God. C.S. Lewis also wrote this, another quote from him. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, our desires are not the problem. And the strength of our desires are a gift. Okay, in the next section of the psalm, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. So he talks here about the pilgrims who have made a habit of going to Jerusalem from all over Israel to come into the presence of God. These pilgrims are familiar with the roads, familiar with the routes to get to the temple. 
Which raises a question for us, does it not? You know, what about for us? Do we know how to come into the presence of God? How to connect with him in prayer when our soul longs and faints? When the ache becomes painful? When the desires seize us? Do we have the highways to Zion in our hearts? We know how to find the God who can satisfy our longings. And you'll have to forgive the language here. I know that theologically it's probably true to say that we're more found by God than that we find him. But again, give me a generous hearing, and I think we know what the psalmist means. Is it not true that there does come a point on our journey with Jesus where we know how to run to him and to throw ourselves on his grace? And for those who do, you'll know what a mercy this is. That in the time of aching, we know how to soak our souls in his goodness and grace. It's not always easy or straightforward, but the highways are in our hearts. But this morning, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, really, if the soul aches, but you don't know the way, and the obvious question is, how on earth do you learn the way? I mean, if you were an Israelite from Galilee, say from Galilee, where Jesus spent a lot of his time, and you were setting out for your first pilgrimage to the presence of God, I don't think it would be the case that the community would sort of say, see you, sort of 200 miles in that direction, we hope you get there. Um, of course not, of course not, I'd be stupid. What they'd do is they'd go with pilgrims who'd been before, and they'd go in the caravans to the festivals, and they'd come back. And they'd go again and come back. And over the years, they would learn the highways by walking with others who know the way. And so I say this to say, um, you know, we often talk about the language of discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus. We talk about that. I just encourage you to take that really seriously because it's about satisfying the longings of your heart and the inner ache. When we say, as I will again say this morning, you know, if you don't know the way to the presence of God, then we can help find someone who will show you. Like, take that really seriously. This is about the fulfillment of your desires and the presence of God. And we have all, we all have to learn. You know, I've had people in my life who have shown me the paths. It's really important. It's really important. So, do you take discipleship seriously? And the difference that this makes is profound. If we go on to the next part of the psalm, you know, no one has ever heard of the Valley of Bacar. The suspicion is it's not a real place. It's a metaphor. Uh, but the, the metaphor, the word, creates the picture of a wilderness. So to kind of interpret the psalm for you, what the psalmist is saying is that those who know their ways to the presence of God, the highways are in their hearts, when they go through the Valley of Bacar, the place of wilderness... They make it a place of springs, and the early rain covers it with pools. When those who know the highways to Zion make the wilderness a place of life. And hard troubles happen to all of us, don't they? I mean, the desert times will strike every Christian. If you've been a Christian a while, you'll have been in them. If you're a new Christian, they're coming. The desert times will come. And um, the funny thing is that when they come, some people become bitter and turn their hearts on, turn their hearts away from God, and others become softer and are drawn towards God. What makes the difference? What makes the difference? Well, I think the psalmist is right. In my short experience and observation of others, 
It seems to me that the difference is those who have made a habit of finding the presence of God and seeking their heart satisfaction in him. It's those who know the highways who can find that the wilderness can bring life. And this is no triumphalism, you know. No one wants to enter the Valley of Bacar. And often when we do, we become more broken, genuinely more broken. We don't choose it. But it is a brokenness through which Jesus is formed in us. And it's worth more than the gold and the silver of an easy life. So we come to verse 10, the heart of spiritual experience. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You know, when we first begin our spiritual journey, um, I think we come to God for something most of the time. And I'm not knocking that. I think that's just how we start. I think that's how I started. You come to God for help often, a grief or a challenge in life, a low point, or we come for a sense of purpose, or we want life to go well, or we want to join a real community, or we want, you know, we want, we want, we want, we want forgiveness maybe, we want to avoid hell, we want, there's all kinds of things we come to God for, and I think that's fine really. God is the good giver, and we need him to give us loads of stuff every day, and that's often how Jesus invited people to start, you know, he met a need, people came to him for something. But as we grow and mature in our faith, if we continue our apprenticeship to Jesus, our discipleship, then our spiritual experience will begin to take on a different colour. It's not something we have to force, it just will over time. We will realise that our deepest desires and the ache that I banged on about today is not just for what God can give us, but is for God himself. You know, we long for beauty and goodness, love, joy, justice, etc. But over time, we realise that ultimately these are found in a person. Found in a person, our creator, Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit. And as we start to realise this, I think, then the inarticulate longings of our heart start to become articulate. They start to become articulate. We start to know the thing for which we desire. When we taste the smallest drop of God's presence, then the truth is that we're sort of ruined for anything else. And the memory of the memory can draw our hearts at the strangest times as something reminds us of something that feels a bit like the longing we experience when we touch the edges of the presence of God. And it's worth everything. And that's when our dreams of power and significance can die. You know, I'd rather be an ordinary doorkeeper in the house of God than fulfill everything else, anywhere else. Whether that's in the tents of the wicked or the tents of the not-so-wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. That's my hope. I can let go of my desires for money, sex, power, pleasure. 
Because I know that in the presence of God, all good things he will give me. All good things he will give me. And he'll give them to me by giving me himself. You know, the soul can find its satisfaction in the end. The ache can find its healing. Desire can find its goal. That's what I'd define as true spiritual experience. The desire of the heart finds its goal. Everything that's true in our spiritual experience has something of that about it. Often feels like peace when we experience it. This is the journey of Christian spirituality to enjoy God for his own sake and to find joy and satisfaction in him. That's why Tim's question is important. In the end, what's our hope? In the end, why do we want God to come? In the end, what is our hope in the end? For me, I think it's the satisfaction of the longings I've experienced all my life. It's not just about me, but existentially, that's what it feels like. Of course, this is now only in part, don't we? We remember those verses, only in part. We see through a mirror dimly. We know in part. One day we'll have the fullness. One day we'll be fully known. Let me just finish with two encouragements and I'll hand back to Tim and Sally to, to, to do what they want, really. First encouragement is that God has implanted in each of us a desire for himself, in each of you. It's there. It is planted in your heart. You may not recognize it. You may not feel it at the moment. For all kinds of reasons, you may have piled loads of stuff on top of it, maybe buried. But try as you might, it cannot be destroyed. And as we learn to follow Jesus, we give ourselves to Christian community and ask others to help us, we can find that those desires can be reawakened. They can find room to breathe. And when they do that, they become the energy and the motivating factor that takes us to God. You know, so many of us come to God because we feel we should, really, some days. <laughs> yeah. But the invitation of God is to nurture in us a desire that drives us towards him because we want to. It's a journey of Christian spirituality. So don't bury your desires. That's my plea for you this morning. Don't bury your aches. Feel the pain. But read Psalm 84 and let your souls long for what they most truly need. Second encouragement is um, that your deepest needs and desires can find their satisfaction whatever your circumstances. Whatever your circumstances, practically, relationally. Because your deep desires need nothing more and nothing less than God. And he's equally available to us. You know, life is unfair. You all have been dealt a different hand. But there's nothing that can take away real hope for you, if you know what it is. The highways to Zion can be found wherever you are. Come, all who are thirsty, says the Lord. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, says Jesus. And you will find rest for your souls.